There was an interesting case decided by the Supreme Court in April. This was called Ramos v. Louisiana. Ramos had been convicted of murder by a jury. There's 12 people on a jury. Two of them did not think he was guilty. Now, it's kind of weird because juries have to be unanimous. But actually, there's exceptions to that. Oregon and Louisiana, until very recently, allowed convictions by non-unanimous juries. Now, I think other states have at times played with this and then got rid of it. I'm not 100% about that, but I think that's the case. But Oregon and Louisiana, this was kind of a, a legacy, a leftover of the post-Civil War period. The default is jury verdicts have to be unanimous. But following the Civil War, some states, they decided to make it so that you could be convicted by a jury even if the jury's verdict was not unanimous. Why did they do that? They did that because the post-Civil War era amendments, specifically the 14th Amendment, they prohibited excluding African Americans from juries. So what some states did is they said, okay, we'll allow African Americans on juries, but we're going to diminish the significance of that by making it so that if two jurors vote not guilty, the other 10 jurors can still carry the day. You can imagine a jury with two African Americans and 10 white people, and they split 10-2. And these states were making it so that those verdicts would be upheld. And everybody agreed that the practice was rooted in this very racist history. So this Ramos guy, he'd been convicted by a jury, 10-2. Now, was he convicted by 10 white jurors and the two dissenters were African Americans? I don't know. But he brought the case to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, yeah, you're right. This is a violation of the Sixth Amendment. The Sixth Amendment doesn't explicitly say that you have a right to a unanimous jury verdict. But that's only because that's taken for granted. The Sixth Amendment says you have the right to a jury trial. It didn't occur to the people who wrote the amendment that you had to explicitly say, and the jury verdict has to be unanimous. So this guy Ramos, his conviction was overturned. Thousands of other people's convictions were overturned. Can those people be tried again? I think when a jury can't reach a verdict, I think the state is allowed to try the case again. If the verdict is essentially commuted to a hung jury then I bet that these people can be tried again. And it's possible that's a good thing. Certainly some subset of these people were actually guilty of the crime that they were convicted of having committed. The case is interesting in part because of where the justices fell on either side of this question. It was a 6-3 decision. Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, they're the Trump appointees. They were part of the majority. They said that the Sixth Amendment guarantees the right to only be convicted by 
a unanimous jury verdict. Chief Justice John Roberts, Samuel Alito, they're considered conservative justices. I think Alito especially so. They dissented, but the interesting dissent was Kagan. Elizabeth Kagan? I might have her first name wrong. Kagan is considered one of the liberal justices, and so it might appear surprising that she was on this side of the case. She's basically upholding a practice that is very blatantly, everybody accepts, is rooted in the white backlash to the end of slavery. So why was she on this side of the case? She's all about precedent. The court decided a case in the 70s in which they said that it was not a violation of the Constitution to allow convictions by non-unanimous juries. So she said, we already ruled on this question. We need to respect the precedent that we set. It's called stare decisis. The commentary that I've heard says that what Kagan is up to here is that she has her eye toward the abortion cases. And she wants to persuade the new swing justice, which is Chief Justice John Roberts. He's the swing vote now. She wants to persuade him to vote to uphold the constitutional right to an abortion in a very soon-to-be-decided case. June Medical Center, I think it's called. If I had to guess, 5-4, they uphold abortion rights. The term electromagnetic radiation, that's sometimes used interchangeably with the word light, but that's a little misleading because colloquially, when we say light, we mean visible light. Visible light is a subset of electromagnetic radiation. When you're looking at the electromagnetic spectrum, right smack in the middle is the range of electromagnetic radiation that we call visible light. It's a little tiny band. One useful thing is that because this is a subset of the larger electromagnetic spectrum, is that it's also true of visible light that as you move from left to right, you move from shorter to longer wavelengths of electromagnetic radiation, and you move from higher energy electromagnetic radiation to lower energy electromagnetic radiation. And this becomes important in the study of stars. Blue light is toward the left on the visible light spectrum, and red light is toward the right on the visible light spectrum. So blue light is short wavelength, high energy. It indicates that a star that is emitting blue light is very warm. A star that is emitting red light is, relatively speaking, <laughs> relative to the temperatures of other stars, it's relatively cool. Have you ever heard the term redshifted? Well, the redshift. This was Hubble, wasn't it? Hubble. He's the guy who figured out that the universe is expanding. He was using something called the 100-inch telescope. I think the, um, 
Who's that rich guy? Gave away all his money. Gilded Age kind of character. Built all those libraries. Who the hell am I thinking of here? The something found it. Carnegie. Carnegie had the 100-inch telescope built. I think it was the largest telescope in the world at the time. And that's the telescope that Hubble was using. We're talking very roughly, going off memory, 1920, something like that. So Hubble was looking up at these stars, and he noticed something. He compared the light that they would be expected to be emitting with the light that they were emitting. And he noticed that the light that they were emitting was shifted toward the red. In other words, the wavelengths of the light being emitted by the stars was being stretched out. What would cause that? The objects were moving away. So that's how Hubble figured out that the universe is expanding. Speaking of looking up at the stars, this blew my mind. I talked before about the constellations. I noted that, was it Eudoxus? Eudoxus was a Greek. He said that he got the constellations from the Egyptians. Researchers today don't think the Egyptians came up with those constellations. They think that the Sumerians came up with those constellations around 2000 BC. What I learned recently blew my mind. There's a constellation called Ursa Major. The Big Dipper is part of Ursa Major. Ursa means bear. Major means great. It's the great bear. Think about this. Cultures all over the world have that constellation. To appreciate the significance of this, we have to say something that no one ever mentions. You, you always think it, but no one says it. The constellations look absolutely nothing like the thing that we say they look like. No two cultures were going to independently arrive at the idea that the same blob of stars in the sky looked like a bear. Some culture came up with this idea, and that idea spread from that culture to other cultures. What's the big deal about this? The native peoples of the Americas had this constellation. The native peoples of the Americas were cut off from the rest of the world for something like 13,000 years. So we have a few possibilities. The first one is that somebody from the old world, whether that was Siberia, whether that was fucking Denmark. They hopped on a boat, sailed to the Americas, and told them about this constellation. That's one possibility. But DNA is what does most of the lifting here in terms of verifying that the peoples of the Americas, the indigenous peoples of the Americas, they came from Siberia and were subsequently cut off from the rest of the world for 13,000 years. If that is true, that means that this idea of Ursa Major, they didn't call it Ursa Major, it means that this idea traveled with them to the Americas 13,000 years ago. That means that this idea of Ursa Major 
is at least 13,000 years old. And if it's at least 13,000 years old, it's not like somebody standing at the tip of Siberia came up with this idea and then it trickled east and west. It means that the idea is way older than 13,000 years. There's something moving about that, isn't there? To have this hint of an idea that we can verify goes back over 10,000 years. Is it 20,000 years? Now, there's lots of things we can be sure that people have been thinking about forever. But this is the closest thing, I think, to, to a written record of the beliefs of Stone Age peoples. I mean, we have art. That's something. But this accident of geography that inadvertently verifies that an idea existed before a certain date, I couldn't tell you what about it is so moving to me, but there's something moving about it. Now, here's what I want to know. The indigenous people of Australia, those people have been on my list of people who deserve my attention for a while. And at some point, I'm going to get around to learning about them. And if it turns out that these people, who, by the way, are believed to have been cut off from the rest, the rest of us for 50,000 years, if these people have an Ursa Major... My fucking head will explode.